Scripture this morning is Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible. The Lord's word came to me, go and proclaim to the people of Jerusalem. The Lord proclaims, I remember your first love, your devotion as a young bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in an unplanted land. Israel was devoted to the Lord, the early produce of the harvest. Whoever ate from it became guilty. Disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Listen to the Lord's word, people of Judah, all you families of the Israelite household. This is what the Lord says. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that made them wander so far? They pursued what was worthless and became worthless. They didn't ask, where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness in a land of deserts and ravines, in a land of drought and darkness, in a land of no return, where no one survives. I brought you into a land of plenty to enjoy its gifts and goodness, but you ruined my land. You disgraced my heritage. The priests didn't ask, where's the Lord? Those responsible for the instruction didn't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets spoke in the name of Baal, going after what has no value. That is why I will take you to court and charge even your descendants, declares the Lord. Look to the west as far as the shores of Cyprus and to the east as far as the land of Kedar. Ask anyone there, has anything this odd ever taken place? Has a nation switched gods, though they aren't really gods at all? Yet my people have exchanged their glory for what has no value. Be stunned at such a thing, you heavens. Shudder and quake, declares the Lord. My people have committed two crimes. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug wells, broken wells that can't hold water. Good morning. My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here. And just a reminder as we get going that we are starting our Alpha small group next week, in the middle of next week. This is a small group designed for people who maybe have questions about what they believe about God, what they believe about Jesus, um, who are looking to just explore kind of big questions of life in a safe conversational space. So um, some of you are just making a remarkable amount of invitations, which is awesome, but just keep in mind, this is a great week to invite people, and we start next Wednesday. There are details in your newsletter and invitations out by the mailboxes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the voice we just heard read this morning of one of your people thousands of years ago, already tuned to your heart. Show us what it means to follow you, to love you more completely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the Old Testament prophets, I've noticed um, in the last year or two, are experiencing an almost unprecedented time of popularity. Like, the, the prophets weren't super popular in their own day, but they're kind of having a moment right now, at least in American culture, um, because we've kind of woke up recently and discovered these guys were really ahead of their time. I mean, in a time in history, if you think back, you're talking 2,500 years ago, a time when kings were considered gods and women were considered property. These guys were going around screaming at the top of their lungs that God was concerned with the poor, concerned with widows, and that God was going to judge the powerful according to how they behaved toward these 
It only took us like 2,500 years to catch on to this, but we, we now have a, a term for it. We call it social justice. And after a few millennia, we've sort of discovered maybe these guys were onto something. But, you know, the funny thing about reading through the prophets, um, it's a bit of a, a challenge sometimes to read through much of the prophets because you'll find there's two major topics. They, they just kind of circle around again and again and again. You could say that the Old Testament prophets have two sermons. Um, one sermon is about social justice, but the other sermon topic the prophets take on, it takes up just as much space, but it gets way less attention. And the topic of the, the other sermon they love to preach is idolatry, or what you might call God-swapping. Um, Jeremiah brings this up in, in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Has any, had nations switched gods? Like, you all are God-swapping. Um, what does this mean? Well, in the story Jeremiah tells, um, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, rescued them in Egypt. Um, verse 6, Jeremiah says, like, remember what I did for you. I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt. But, verse 8, when they enter the land of Canaan, this, this new kind of homeland that these ex-slaves are moving into, they meet another God called Baal. Now, Baal is the weather god of the land of Canaan. In, in the ancient world, you have gods for all sorts of stuff, and, and Baal's the guy who controls the rain and the storm. If you were going to farm in the middle of the desert it makes sense that you kind of want to get in cozy with the guy who controls the faucet. Right? And so as you're reading this, this, this kind of conversation in the people of Israel about this God of Baal, this weather God, that they're constantly tempted to worship, it's really easy to skim past it as modern people because you read this and you think, our world feels so different. Like they're having this battle between a, a like Walmart shopping center of God options and we can barely hold on to the thought there might be one God. Right? It, it doesn't feel like the struggle they're having is super relevant. Um, but as, as Christians, specifically as Anabaptist Christians, which is the tradition we belong to as a church, uh, one of the things we believe is that you're, if you're going to read the Old Testament and interpret it well, you have to bring the Old Testament to Jesus and ask, what does Jesus have to say about it? So, so let's kind of bring this conversation with the prophets to Jesus and ask, what, what does Jesus think? Um, well, the first thing you might know in Luke 13, verse 33, um, Jesus talks about himself and he says, it's necessary for me to travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside Jerusalem. Um, what has Jesus just done here? He's placed himself within the line of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is many things, but one of the things he is very clearly by his own kind of statement and conviction is he is one of the line of the prophets. So, so what does it mean for Jesus to be a prophet? Um, well, if you look at the things he's teaching about, um, a couple weeks ago we talked about how Jesus is in full agreement with the prophets about that whole social justice conversation. Right? Jesus is in full agreement with the prophets that God has this profound concern for the poor and the vulnerable. Um, but what's really interesting is Jesus is just as concerned as the prophets about idolatry. We just often don't notice it because it looks so different in the New Testament than it does in the Old Testament. 
It's kind of strange in some ways because, you know, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. The prophets lived 2,500 years ago. Jesus was a lot closer in time to the Old Testament prophets than to us. Um, But in fact, the situation of the world in Jesus' day was much closer to us than the Old Testament. Um, Jesus is working and teaching and talking in a Jewish world. And in the Jewish world at this time, they are fierce monotheists. This was not true in the Old Testament period. In the Old Testament period, they thought about many gods. They were constantly tempted by them. But by Jesus' day, centuries later, they had fought wars to hold on to the conviction that there is only one God. So nobody in Jesus' world, any more than in our world, is like wandering around looking for a statue to bow down to. That's not a part of the Jewish world. That's what you would find in like Roman cultures that Jews look down on. So so the question is, what competes with God when all the other gods are dead? What competes with God when all the other gods are dead? And I think Jesus gives two primary answers to this in his ministry. And these answers are just as relevant in 2021 as they were back in the first century. What competes with God when the other gods are dead? Number one, an idol Jesus calls mammon, which is a fancy word for money. Um, You might have heard it said before that money is the number one thing that Jesus talks about. More of his teachings are devoted to this than any other topic, but why? Like, why is so much of Jesus' ministry talking about money? Well, in the Old Testament, the chief competitor of God has a name, God's competitor is named Baal. The name Baal literally means master. Now listen to what Jesus says during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth or mammon. Notice what Jesus has done here. He's given a name to God's new chief competitor, and the name of God's competitor is money. Now, if you have trouble, like, picturing, it's almost hard because money is so familiar, it's so close to our lives. Like, picturing why Jesus thinks this is the case, how powerful it is, I want you to just imagine, I have a pile of, like, $100 bills here. Um, These are fakes, (laughs) just for the record. But I want you to just imagine for a second, somebody like came up to you this morning and they popped open a suitcase like you see on the movies and you just saw this pile of these $100 bills lying in the suitcase and they said, this is for you. What's funny to me is like, I don't even have to have that long of a time to imagine that scenario. I get this like almost flushed feeling, you know, like my heart starts pounding a little. You know, one of these things in like a birthday card is is pretty darn exciting. You put a pile of them, like all of us are going to have this visceral, physical, emotional reaction. That, that, That physical reaction, that should be the first kind of indicator to us. There's something going on here that is really powerful, whatever else we say about it. Now, I think that one of the reasons that money outlasts bail Like, Baal had his moment, but he lasted a few centuries. Money's been doing real well as a god for several thousand years now. 
Um, one of the reasons is that money offers the same thing the gods used to, but it's a lot more convincing about its ability to pay. Right, what does money offer? Well, number one, it offers safety. I mean, I don't know about you all, but like one of the biggest concerns on my mind is often health insurance. You have enough money and you can pay your way to a lot better health. I listened to coverage recently about um, just people trying to get out of Afghanistan, and I was thinking about like what would I do if I was an Af a person like in this situation in Afghanistan? And you know, the first thing that's going through my head is like, who would I bribe, or like how would I buy the ticket to get on the plane? Because money is what gets you through to safety. Money is what gets you a house in a good neighborhood. It's what gets you a security system. Um, what else does money offer? Well, it offers control. Um, I was listening to coverage of the hurricane down in Louisiana this week, and they were talking about, as, they, as you go through New Orleans, how you have people in these impoverished neighborhoods where it's like 110 degrees, and they're just pouring sweat, and there's no refrigeration and electricity, and they don't know what to do. Do we leave? Where would we go? They're miserable. And then you go in the wealthy neighborhoods, and everybody's got a generator, and they're sitting in their air conditioning drinking their beer. Because that's the kind of control you have over your life when you can afford to pay for stuff. Money gives you control. And the third big thing, I don't know whether, I couldn't decide, do I call this pleasure, do I call this meaning? But you know, if you have enough money, you can go to a concert and you can have one of those profoundly transcendent experiences where you hear that music and it touches something deep in you. If you're really rich, you can go up to space and I hear that it's almost impossible to go to space without having that transcendent meaning experience. Like, money can give you at least a temporary sensation of meaning. And the great thing about money and its offer of safety and control and meaning is you don't have to really trust anyone invisible because you just hold it and you count on it. So what's the problem with money as a god? I mean, let's not just moralize and be like, because... God is right. Like, what is actually the problem with this as an idol? Um, well, number one, it's not actually as reliable as we think. Like, ask the people of Venezuela, right? Like, money isn't anything. It's paper. Like, functionally, this is the same thing as actual money. It only has value if people give it value, and that can change really fast. Like, if a disaster were to suddenly strike Arizona and there's no water, it doesn't matter how much money you have, your money is worth nothing if there's nothing there to buy. Um, second thing, money is a really vicious master. Like, as something you serve, as something you worship, money is really vicious. And most people do not realize this until the later years of their life. And if you talk to people in their 80s, um, this is something that so many people will tell you. As they look back on their life, they'll be like, I worked so hard and I did so much, but like, I didn't spend that much time with my kids and we don't have much relationship now. And I wish I had friends, but I didn't really like, invest in a lot of friendships. And, and they're asking themselves, what happened? Well, what often happened is the things that were worth most got sacrificed to the God of money, right? To, to the God of like having something more that they thought would satisfy them that never actually got them there. And the thing about money as a master is it'll keep like demanding and demanding and demanding your blood and it will never say that's enough. It'll never say you got there. Money is like really cruel as a master that way. 
And, and the, the other thing about money as a God is it's not just mean to you as the person seeking it, it's also really cruel to everyone else in the world. Now, I've been thinking about this the last couple of weeks because multiple times as I've watched these huge disasters unfold across the world, I've had this real profound impulse in prayer. Like, I need to give to this. I need to like, live, live in a different way, some way to support what's going on. And I, I make a decision, like, this is the amount of money I'm going to give and this is what I'm going to do. And then I let it wait for like 24 hours, maybe 36 hours. And then I'm like, you know, health insurance. You know, like my, my brain flips back into like, what, what, wait, but what about that thing I needed? What about that thing I wanted? And, and pretty soon I've like talked myself out of the thing that I was totally convinced before would be the just right thing to do for everyone else in the world. I mean, money is cruel to me, but money is also cruel to everybody else in the world. Like it, it, it stamps down on that impulse we have toward generosity. Okay, I think we, we've thoroughly covered God number one. What about God number two? Um, This one, the name is going to deceive you at first, but I couldn't come up with a better one, so hang with me for a moment. But I'm calling this the God of religion. The God of religion. Jesus, um, well, let me me say this. I I forgot to say one thing about money before we switch topics. Um, the problem of, when we come back to the problem of money, one of the questions is like, if, if we recognize this is a problem, like money is a cruel master, money is cruel to me, to the people around me, what do I do about it? This is a bit of an issue for us um, because unlike Baal, if you want to not worship Baal, you just don't bring the statue home, you know? It's, it's fairly straightforward. But money, you have to have it. Like, what are you going to do? So how, how do we begin to untangle this problem? Um, well, it's not the dollar amount that is actually going to tell us when money has crossed the line into idolatry status. Um, Jesus has this conversation in, in Luke chapter 12, and I, I've told you before, this to me is one of the most haunting things that Jesus ever says. Um, someone from the crowd says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Keep going. And Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me as judge or referee between you and your brother? Then Jesus said to them, watch out, guard yourself against all kinds of greed. After all, one's life isn't determined by one's possessions, even when someone is very wealthy. Note these words, watch out, guard yourself. Uh, What Jesus is indicating here is like, if we're going to avoid this particular idol of mammon, it's going to take constant vigilance because it's so sneaky. So what are the signs that trouble is starting? Let me give you just three indicators. If you ask yourself, like, how am I doing with this particular sneaky God? Um, Three signs of trouble starting. Um, Number one is you're beginning to equate your worth with your income. Beginning to equate your worth with your income. And when I talk to people, I find this can, all, this can actually happen in both positive and negative directions. Um, so some people tend to identify with their worth because they're making quite a bit of money and it makes them feel really good about themselves, right? Like the, the paycheck I'm getting proves that I'm valuable and I'm important. And, and so we're, we're kind of tying our worth and esteem to how much we're getting. Now, I know a lot of people, more people probably who are on the other end that are like, no one will pay me what I'm worth, and it must mean I'm not worth very much. 
right? And we get this kind of downward spiral, like I, I just can't climb the ladder and that must say something about me. Um, in, in biblical terms, like your worth and your income have no relationship whatsoever with each other. And when, when we find our, ourselves beginning to kind of evaluate and tie ourselves with that, that check, that, that's one sign of trouble. Um, second thing, what do you do when you're afraid? What do you do when you're afraid? Um, sign of trouble, if you start checking and rechecking your account balances when you're feeling nervous, just for that like, comforting rush of seeing what's in there, like, that, that's probably a sign that something is going wrong here because that security concern, the security we look to, to our gods to, that's getting tied to something in the bank account. And, and third thing, and I think this, this, is the, this is the doozy that Jesus brings up, preoccupation with fairness or getting what's your due. Um, I think it's really funny that this conversation for Jesus comes up in the context of inheritance in the first century, because I have to tell you as a pastor, this is where I see it come up all the time in the 21st century, right? Like, like every time you infuse even a little bit of money in a family system and you're like, how is this going to get divided? Like, it never goes well. It never goes well. Like people who the week before would have said they're not concerned with money at all are suddenly consumed with like, what is fair here? And am I getting what is my due? And, and everything gets kind of vested in this decision of how we divide this pool of money. And Jesus says, we, we got to watch out. Like when this becomes a consuming preoccupation, when the stakes become so big around this thing for us, it, it's probably a sign we're over-investing in what this thing represents. Right? Those are the warning signs. Um, so, so now let's go back and switch over to the second idol, the idol of religion. Um, the group of people that Jesus takes the harshest tone with are the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders. And, and I want to read you just a, a small passage of Jesus having one of his, you might say, meanest conversations that Jesus ever has with this group of people. And this is what he says. How terrible it will be for you blind guides who say, if people swear by the temple, it's nothing. But if people swear by the gold in the temple, they're obligated to do what they swore. You foolish and blind people, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy? How terrible it will be for you legal experts and Pharisees, hypocrites. You give God a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, but you forget the important matters of the law, justice, peace, and faith. You ought to give a tenth, but without forgetting about those more important matters. You blind guides, you filter out an ant, but swallow a camel. Jesus does a great analogy there. So, so what's the deal with the Pharisees? Well, these, these guys are uber-religious. They, they want to do the right thing, but something has gone wrong in their attempt to do right. Something has gone wrong in the attempt to do right. They know that they're supposed to give God 10%, so they start like counting out the herbs on the counter. They know that they're supposed to keep the Sabbath. They're supposed to keep Saturday a holy day. So they start counting how many steps people walk. They know that they're supposed to keep their word. But what do they do? They start splitting hairs on in what situations and with what words you actually have to use in order to be bound to the thing that you say. And Jesus doesn't have a problem with like any of the practices the Pharisees are actually doing. He's like, by all means, tithe, give God 10% of your herbs. Like, by, by all means, do that. But what is the problem, Jesus says? Well, look at verse 13. You shut people out of the kingdom of heaven. 
You don't enter yourself, and you won't allow those who want to enter to do so. In other words, Jesus says the problem is that all of these practices you're doing, when they're working right, they're supposed to lead people toward a relationship with God, but instead you are sacrificing people to your rules. I mean, the the good things that you started out pursuing for God's sake have now become God's instead. Now, this problem is alive and well today. It's just easier to see in some situations than others. Um, Many people who are a part of this Trinity community are here in part because you might have been a part of other religious communities where you experienced the kind of legalism that sounds a lot like the Pharisees, right? Like people using kind of large, elaborate rules that they're using to shut other people out. That's one form. Uh, But there there are other versions of this that I I see all the time, including in our community, that look a little different. And basically how it works is this. Um, People find some kind of abstract principle or value that's really true and really good, and they get excited about it. And they start reading about it and start talking about it, and pretty soon they become convinced, like all of faith is about this one thing. And it goes from being a good thing to being the only good thing, the thing that everything else needs to be sacrificed for. And this is the way that even secular people become fundamentalists. This is why I say, like, calling this the idol of religion is tricky because religious people worship it, but so do secular people. It's the one absolute all-consuming principle that people must be broken over. And the problem is, that even good principles turn into demons when they're worshipped as gods. Even good principles turn into demons when they become gods. Let me give you some examples. Some of these are bound to sound familiar. I mean, we probably all know people that in some way or another have basically walked in front of a bus just to prove to other people you can't tell me not to do it. That's the idol of freedom. It's a good thing but do you want to walk in front of a bus to prove you have it? And we probably all know people who hold peace as this high extraordinary value, but people who hold peace as a God will sacrifice truth, will sacrifice safety, will sacrifice everything in a community just to keep the conflict out. Um, I've seen this in the form of acceptance. Like some of us really value acceptance highly. We want people to feel like they belong. But when acceptance becomes a God, it becomes so important not to hurt people that we actually hurt people worse by not telling them something is wrong and they're bleeding out. I've seen this happen with self-sacrifice. Some of us hold self-sacrifice as a high Christian value, but self-sacrifice as a God becomes self-annihilation. It just completely shreds people and wipes them out. Even justice becomes destructive when it becomes a God because it gets cold and hard and cruel. When Christians say God is love, you could say love is the one principle that's above this, right? Like love is the one thing. But here's the thing about love. Like, love, in a Jesus sense, involves wrath and mercy, freedom and submission, peace and conflict, acceptance and judgment, sacrifice and celebration. It's only actually love when all those contradictory things are held together. So much, much like money, you don't want to go home without principles, 
right? Like the point here is not to say you shouldn't have principles that you're passionate about. We want people to have passionate principles. But how do you recognize when those things are evolving and turning that way away from a principle and into an idol that's going to destroy more than it heals? Um, Well, three quick things. Um, Number one, it's a warning sign if that one thing, that one principle, that one value is beginning to consume your whole vision of what is important or interesting or worth worshiping in God. Like when that one attribute, when that one quality begins to kind of paint the whole landscape into one color. We want to worship wide. We want to work wide. Um, Second thing, we know we're in trouble if we can no longer recognize the limits where that one thing we value stops and where another important thing kicks in. Right? Like, when you're saying to yourself, it's all about, like, whatever word comes into your head, whatever that thing is that kind of stirs your passion, and we all have something, like, it's really important to have that thing and to value it. But do you know where its limit is reached? Do you know where the boundary point is? Um, And third thing, and this is maybe the most telling, you know you're in trouble if you can no longer love people who are questioning or struggling with the principle that you love. Like, when your allegiance to this thing is becoming more important than your love for people who are wrestling with it, that's another sign we've crossed that territory into something that's serving God to something that's standing in God's place. Now, you might be wondering at, the, at this point, at the end of the sermon, like, what does all this have to do with a series on justice? What does idolatry have to do with justice? Um, the reason I wanted to have this conversation in this series is that for the prophets, idolatry and social justice are not separate questions. They're one question. Because both of them are about what do we owe to God? I mean, social justice for the prophets is a natural extension of, like, when we are properly aligned with God what we owe to God and through God to each other. And it's a kind of strange question, we don't use this language very often, to ask, how do I do justice to God? Like, how do I make sure I'm in a just, right relationship with God? Um, But I I really like the answer Jeremiah kind of points to. Sometimes when we read the prophets, we tend to hear them in angry tones in our head. Um, But when I read Jeremiah, there's not anger, there's just this kind of, you might call it pathos. Like, there's this kind of turmoil in the voice of God. Um, Listen to just a few lines again of this passage. Verse 2. The Lord proclaims, I remember your first love, your devotion as a young bride. I I was your first love. Remember how great it was for us together? Verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What wrong did your ancestors find in me? Like, what didn't I do for you, God says. Verse 7. I brought you into a land of plenty to enjoy its gifts and goodness. I was good to you. We had this amazing relationship together. Verse 8. And now look at we are. Even, even the priests aren't asking, where's God? Nobody's missing me. Nobody's looking for me. And verse 13. And this is the worst part. You're the ones that are hurt by this. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug broken wells that can't hold water. I was water, and you drank sand. For Jeremiah and for the prophets, like what God is looking for from us, like what justice means to God, is not mechanical performance. It's relationship. 
It's, it's trust, it's, it's shared life, it's joy, it's affection, it's love. Where love is real, the demands of justice have been met for God. And Jeremiah reminds us, like, this is not about religion. This is not about doing it because you have to do it. It's about drinking real water for you. It's about bringing real water to the world. It's about trading sand for a well that is actually flowing. And that's the conversation of, of idolatry, and that's where justice, social justice and idolatry merge together, is asking where does the living water come from? And how do we make sure we're not trading that water for sand? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this reminder from our ancestors, from people who walked with you long before us, that there are so many things that we'll call for our love and our loyalty and our attention, and that we'll make big promises that in the end they can't deliver on. We pray that in your mercy you would save us from broken wells. Save us from the sand we're tempted to drink. Save us from the sand we're tempted to serve other people. Lead us to the well that is full of real living water for us and for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.